When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Tasha Robinson. Genevieve Kosky. And... Scott Tobias. This week we're talking about Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, a new fact-based sort of comedy starring Tina Fey, written by Fey, Sturdy Rock, and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt partner Robert Carlock, adapted from a memoir by journalist Kim Barker, and directed by Glenn Ficarra and John Requa, the team behind Focus, Crazy Stupid Love, and other films. The films are strikingly different in many ways. Ficarra and Requa bring a studied approach to the direction that owes little to Altman. MASH is very much a movie driven by guys, while Faye's gender factors into the story in ways both large and small, from the ways her colleagues treat her to the steps she has to take to avoid offending Afghans. I'd also argue that, despite its shambolic structure, MASH has a much clearer sense of purpose than Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, but we can get into that in a bit. Yet there are also very much films about makeshift and fluid communities of outsiders that spring up in the middle of war zones. On this half of the podcast, we're going to place one next to the other and see how they approach a similar subject, consider the differences between the approaches, and discuss whether the wars themselves affect the films attempting to portray them. Miss Baker, this is an extreme environment. I've seen people with actual experience make bad decisions here. You should let me interview you. But I do not know you. How can we get to know each other? <laughs> yes, kid. Excellent. Eat bananas here. I don't think I can do this. We are all here for a reason. So what's your reason? I just wanted out of my job. I wanted out of my mildly depressive boyfriend. What are we doing, Kim? Just wanted to blow everything up. That's the most American white lady story I've ever heard. So... Mash, Whiskey Tango, Foxtrot, two different films, I guess, in some in many many different ways. What did uh, how do you think uh, Whiskey Tango, Foxtrot compares to Mash and vice versa? Scott, we'll start with you. Uh, well, I think <laughs> Mash has a really strong uh, point of view, and Whiskey Tango, Foxtrot has got a whole lot of things it's trying to do, and it's kind of okay at every every one of them. Yeah, it's 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 fine. It's a fine movie, and it's it's weirdly. But it, yeah, I think I think kind of kind of to to expand on your point, it's like it's sort of about journalism. It's sort of about being a woman in a war zone. It's sort of about Afghanistan, and it doesn't it doesn't really commit to anything. And ultimately, it it's sort up, of a romance. It's, it's sort of a romance. It's, it's sort of about modern media and trying to sell war and and like turn it of, into a profitable. It's package. sort of about female friendship. Yeah, that's what I was going to say next. It's sort of about this friendship between between the and, and ultimately, it feels like it's sort of about all those things until it's not. And ultimately, I'm not sure what it is about. Yeah. It, it carries it's it's carried along very nicely by Faye. It's it's never dull but it's i don't know can i can i add another sort of since we have it's sort of uh uh like liz lemon in in afghanistan but not it can't because it can't be uh you can't really have her being uh completely you know fumbling through uh the, the chaos of that situation so it's sort of a fish out of water comedy but not it can't be, make her a complete buffoon um uh, so so it's not 30 rock 
uh, even though it is written with uh, her her longtime partner Robert Carlock. I wonder if like how much I haven't read the books that either of these movies are based on. So this is a shot in the dark just based on my understanding of them. But I wonder how much that has to do with the fact that Hooker was a war vet who was writing like pointed satirical fiction about his experiences and the era. Whereas Whiskey Tango Foxtrot came out of a memoir, which is I've like I've read parts of it and it's very much a grab bag of this happened and then this happened. Here's a funny story. Here's a sad story. So like it's kind of from from what I have read of it, it's more political than the movie is. And a lot of that was shaved off. Some of the rougher, like more specific edges were shaved off. It was kind of comedied up a little like to make it more of a Tina Fey story. But, you know, one of these things is just very much an anecdotal series of of life happenings and the other one is kind of a spear thrust at that this guy's life and everything about it that made him angry i'm kind of speaking from a position of ignorance here but I, i'm not sure how satirical the original novel was because mm-hmm. i know that lardner uh the screenwriter ring lardner talks about how it was basically just a straight-up comedy and for all the differences that altman made to his screenplay and for all the friction that created, they both kind of agreed that the spirit of both things were the, were the same. One thing I remember from a friend of mine's parents' basement, they had you know a wall of paperbacks, and there were all these sequels to MASH, which you may not be, <laughs> you're not in familiarity, but, but I have a list of them here. MASH goes to Morocco. MASH goes to Montreal. <laughs> MASH goes to Las Vegas. And I don't really know how these adventures play out in various Well, when the other Korean War spread to Las Vegas. <laughs> well, wow. I, I, I'm kind of fascinated. By, I think I'm going to go read MASH Goes to Montreal just to see what, what Montreal is like. Do you like. know how much I would enjoy a, a Keith Phipps big box of paperbacks <laughs> oh, that was, I was just the same uh, thing. Keith oh, walking his way through the MASH books? Yeah. Please do that. My okay. impression... Montreal is hell. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I think we're, we're, My impression we're, is that Altman disliked the book. I know he referred to the book as racist, but he disliked like the book. Well, and... thank God he eliminated the racism from the <laughs> well, story. Again. Uh, 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 okay. Um, and then... for, for, for a variation on this conversation, see the first half of this podcast. Uh, We're uh, here so, to uh, bully you relentlessly. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know either of these books, so I can't, really can't speak to the relationship between them. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's some interesting comparisons to be made, though, between the two films and particularly this this concept of the of the kabubble mm. um i think it, it's not quite as confined in uh mash mash is a little more spread out but they still are at a remove from the war itself and in, and a culture develops that would not have developed otherwise one of the things that frustrated me about Whiskey Tango Foxtrot is the feeling that you never really get a sense of either what's going on in the bigger picture in Afghanistan or what's going on with the bigger picture in the press corps. And I think that one of the the best parts of MASH is that opening sequence where Aldman puts the cameras on helicopters and makes such a point of circling and circling this camp and showing you the confines of it, showing you no matter how solid and real a place it may seem when you're actually down there from the air it is just this little it's a kabubble it's a korean kabubble you know it's this tiny little temporary community that people come and go from and it's only real while you're there i think that's a brilliant conceit well let me push back a little bit about that uh let me defend 
Whiskey Tango Foxtrot because um, this is a, a film that is locked into one point of view. This is a film that follows Tina Fey. And so whatever her experience is and whatever the limits of her experience are, that's what we experience and that's what we know. Altman has the freedom as, as being more omniscient to show you a much larger picture. But I, I think it's more of a feature of Whiskey Tango Foxtrot that maybe Tina Fey's perspective on the, the war is is limited as, as it is. And I think we kind of get a nice impression uh, and again, to the film's credit, of the diminishing interest in anything coming out of Afghanistan. And she's there for that. She's there for, you know, she's on the ground at, at first and she gets lots of stories. But then it's like, you know, what story could possibly come out of Afghanistan that would we be, would we be interested in running? You know, uh, interest in the war diminishes and then the, the, and the culture changes where she's at. And I think that that is something that the film captures quite well. I also think that, you know, when we're talking about differences between the film is Whiskey Tango Foxtrot has a very specific timeline and a very clear narrative as opposed to the episodic structure of MASH, which gives it more of almost kind of an anthropological feel like you're just kind of dipping into this world and you don't get a huge sense of the internal life of any of those characters and you get a huge sense of the internal life of Baker and Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. You know, Keith and Scott, you suggested this pairing because neither Tasha nor I had seen MASH, so we kind of, you know, took your word for it that this was a you know, a good pairing. And it was, it is a good pairing, almost more for the contrasts than the direct comparisons. But so I think I was going into it not really prepared for that anthropological approach. I was expecting a narrative and I was expecting characters that I could connect to. And it, when it became clear that's how I was getting it, I wasn't really able to adapt my viewing uh, quickly enough. I mean, I think that that's an interesting, it says something interesting about the shift in how journalism, both how journalism works and how film storytelling works. I think MASH is much more about what the characters do and Whiskey Tango Foxtrot is much more about what the characters feel. And I think that's just kind of how journalism goes. Another big difference, I think, for all of us is we, we talked about the difficulty of approaching MASH from the perspective of people when it came out and how people felt about the Vietnam War, whereas one of the things that most struck home for me about Whiskey Tango Foxtrot was I can relate with to that feeling of, yes, what's going on in Afghanistan is important and these are real people's lives, but I'm also weary of hearing the same stories. And that conference at the end with her boss where her boss is like, nobody wants to hear it. I'm like, I kind of sympathize. Like, I... I want to be more engaged with what's going on in her life and what's going on in the real world in Afghanistan that I am. But how many stories can you hear of, you know, insurgents killed this many people without getting like a certain amount of empathy fatigue? But what, I wish the film had hit that point harder than it did. I don't think Altman would. Well, it had a million it, other points to hit. It did have a lot of points to hit, but that is such a critical thing in the movie that's such a critical dynamic in the movie because she's there for that she's there for that diminished interest and we can we know that the the media was so responsible uh for ginning up excitement over going to war but then there's just no follow-through at all no follow-up from from uh the government no follow-through through through, through, for the media no follow-through in terms of the public interest in the war we're all interested in going there and not interested in actually what is going to happen 10 years down the line. And that's a really important point to make that the film makes, but doesn't make it with 
anywhere near the sharpness. Of yeah, the thing, so. I think you should you should be f- leave, and I should leave. We should all leave feeling horrible about that <laughs> <laughs> about the about the empathy fatigue. Uh, when when in fact it's just like it's kind of like yeah, something else that happens. You know, um, we should move on to, to our topics that we've uh, assembled here. Let's talk, I mean humor. Let's talk about that. I mean it is. Whiskey Tango Foxtrot is 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 a comedy of sorts. Uh, Mash is certainly a, a comedy, a very dark comedy. I wouldn't call WTF a a, a a black comedy necessarily, though. The humor is not. There's certainly a fair amount of violence and and a horrible situation. Yet I'm not sure there's like that morbid streak of humor that Mash has. Well, uh, Tasha, this is your this is your topic. So what do you uh, what do you think? No, I agree with you. I think that um, I was expecting, like I, when I came up with the topic, it was before I'd watched MASH, and I was expecting it to hew a little closer to the TV show and a little closer to WTF than it actually did. I think they end up being very different in, they're both approaching the same thing, which is how people use humor in uh, a bad situation to survive. And I think also how people kind of reach for bleak humor in order to as like a survival mechanism as an automatic survival mechanism but they end up being in their approach very very different whiskey tango foxtrot i think is has a much more one-liner approach that's much more for the audience than for the character there's not a lot of sense that the characters are using humor to survive whereas i think that that's what mash is going for um roger ebert's review had a line in it that i thought was really interesting we laugh at MASH because it's so true to the unadmitted sadist in all of us. And it's the flat-out poker-faced hatred in MASH that makes it work. Most comedies make us want to laugh at things that aren't really funny. In this one, we laugh precisely because they're not funny. And to me, that I mean, that sums up why the humor in MASH doesn't work for me, because I, I don't know that I've got the unadmitted sadist. He goes on to talk a lot in that review about how satisfying it is to just hate somebody thoroughly and utterly and see them torn down. And there's so much of that humor in MASH, nothing like that in Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. I think if she has any sort of sense of hate in her at all, it's less for the situation or the people around her and more for her own indecisiveness until she kind of finds herself. Yeah, I think uh, the humor in Whiskey Tango Foxtrot is more self-deprecating than anything, and and not just on uh, Kim's part, on pretty much everyone in the kabubble um, kind of puts on an armor of... Basically, kind of acting like the characters in Mash. You know, there there's a definite sense that the way in which they relate to each other, sort of crassly and crudely, and occasionally cruelly, is born of a certain amount of trauma. And I think that's something that is maybe implied in Mash, but it's not engaged with as clearly as it is in Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. I think, and it's kind of similar to a topic I'm bringing to the table is is some of that is related to how the different attitude towards the military. I, I think they're reflective of, of the times as well, where, where Mash is very um, skeptical of of the military in general, and there's not there's very little respect. I mean, the the people that we spend the most time with are people who are kind of either drafted or not necessarily on board with, with what they're being asked to do. And w- Whiskey Tango Foxtrot has a much more kind of reflects the general attitude right now, which is respect for the military and sort of deference and, 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 and awe at, at the courage needed to go into this zone. I, I mean, you know, I think also the difference there is an audience that might be drafted, an audience that most likely won't as well. I think there's there's that as well. I mean, with the all-volunteer army, it's, it's you know, these people are doing things I would I would never do. If I'm watching this, you know, as, as one of the original audience of MASH, I'm thinking, 
I could get dragged in this situation too. You know, I think, I think that makes a difference as well. Um, I really liked in Whiskey Tango Foxtrot the relationship between uh, Tina Fey's character and Billy Bob Thornton's character. Uh, I thought that was one of the, the strongest elements of the film where, where she is, um, you know, inexperienced, uh, inexperienced journalism who kind of, whose tenacity wins his respect. And he is a uh, consummate professional who kind of, kind of likes the fact that she is coming into things from a different angle too. I thought that was, that was quite nicely done. And it is far, far removed from anything you would see in MASH. I think part of the difference there, as well as the volunteer army versus a group of draftees, is the difference between the protagonists are all technically part of the military hierarchy, even if they don't respect it or participate in it, versus all of the military people seen in Whiskey Tango Foxtrot are really distant side characters. You know, they're subjects for uh, Kim Baker's stories. She's embedded alongside them, but they're really very minor characters. And I think that lets them be freer to be kind of these, like, exalted, brave relatively simple sympathetic characters because they're just like a side element in the story and not one of the more important ones. But also to that point, even though the characters in MASH are technically part of the military, they are removed from the action in the same way that the journalists in the Kabobble are removed from the action where they are still faced with it and they are faced with those horrors, but they are not, uh, with the exception of a couple embeds that uh, Kim Baker goes on, they are not directly involved with the the war you know they are do they are playing their part in the greater ecosystem of it but they are not soldiers they are not footmen and maybe that remove creates a certain sense of helplessness or impotence that affects the use of bleak or black humor it also means that they are spending a lot of time not fighting a war yes. so that transitions into your topic uh, scott th- yes thank you uh genevieve my topic is downtime one important reality of war is that it's boring uh, not all movies about war acknowledge that because they too would be boring. Uh, but Whiskey Tango, Foxtrot, and MASH both take place largely in the downtime between incidents of violence and bloodshed. And within that contained environment, which uh, WTF calls the Kabubble, a debased culture starts to emerge. There are pranks and parties and heavy drinking. Relationships develop and intensify that might not under normal circumstances. You know, Tina Fey and Margot Robbie are probably not friends outside Kabul. Tina Fey and Martin Freeman are probably not lovers. Uh, it seems unlikely, too, that any any of them would be inclined to party quite as hard as they do in, in journalist quarters. It's unnatural for war movies to focus on those long stretches of time when there isn't any major incident. But by doing so, uh, WTF makes those times when Fey is on the move all the more startling. Uh, you know, for her to leave journalist quarters and head off to Kandahar, for example, that has a shock to it that's like uh, emerging from you know a dark theater into a bright afternoon. I think the power of both of these movies is, they, is that they um, make us forget the war enough to be shocked by the, those moments when the war asserts itself. I agree. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, so I think I think it's important to note those those periods, but before when when you're sort of wank, waiting anxiously for something to happen, you know, and what kind of culture develops uh, in in this mix of intensity and isolation, I guess. I feel like the difference, though, is with Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. There seems to be a feeling like there's a lot of time spent waiting. Specifically, I'm going on an embed, but I can't until they go out. I'm going on an embed, but I can't until I'm cleared. We're waiting for the uh, ice to melt the passes we're waiting for my fixer to make the hookup but even so like 
as with so many things that the movie kind of half does, mm-hmm. I feel like we only see a very little part of Kim Baker's journalistic initiative. Mm-hmm. We get a very small sense of what she's doing on a daily basis besides partying. And that for me changes the feel of the partying that she does. It changes the feel of how the movie approaches downtime because it's very unclear to me how much of any given downtime is her choice and how much isn't. Whereas the characters in MASH are strictly regulated by when wounded come in, which they can't control and which often happens in long cycles that make them work long hours. They're living entirely on somebody else's clock. It kind of feels like Baker is living much more on her own clock. Uh, yeah, that's another point. I almost wish, again, that Whiskey Tango Foxtrot had hit a little bit harder. Being a journalist embed, you are on someone else's time and they are scheduling things and you're and you're it's not this it's not something where she can kind of venture out and do something or have or have a story come to her in a really spontaneous way, you know. It's a, so in that sense it's a, it is different than MASH where just suddenly, you know, a, a series of uh, mangled bodies are just going to show up and they're going to have to deal with it. One point that Whiskey Tango Foxtrot does hit very hard is the implication that Kim Baker and really all the journalists are addicted to being out in the field and that that is a form of addiction, the danger. There's a very pointed scene where a character played by white man, Christopher Abbott, playing a character named (laughs) Fahim, uh, who is uh, Baker's translator, uh, kind of points out to her that she is exhibiting signs of addiction in her uh, desire to chase after stories. And in that context, the downtime in Whiskey Tango Foxtrot is not an escape. It's it's something difficult. It's something to be reckoned with. It's something to be escaped from through other addictive behaviors. Whereas in MASH, it seems like it is much more a necessary release. Can we just do a quick aside about Christopher Abbott? <laughs> because I, I'm, I'm, what about I'm, Alfred Molina? I'm, yeah, Alfred Molina. I, I'm very I'm conflicted because I'm a, I like Christopher Abbott a lot. He's a great actor, and, and he's and I think he's, and good, he's in good in this. this. He's actually I very had good no in this. No problem but, with him in this movie. It's just, it's just strange to have someone cast. I mean, there are no, there are no shortage of Middle Eastern actors, you know. And, and like, given the concerns that are going, I don't know. Maybe this is a whole other podcast. But I, I found myself very torn because I thought he was very good. Well, Whenever it comes up, you kind of have to ask the question again. Okay, so here's the thing with Christopher Abbott. For me, he might have stood out a little more in a film that didn't have Alfred Molina. (laughs) Yeah. Because I thought Molina was just stood out like a sore thumb. Just doing a very over the top. uh, um, Yeah. Yeah. Who feels like he comes in from a different movie, a much more Tina Fey, 30 Rock kind of version of this movie. Very. I would say that both of them should not have been cast. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And actually, spent the last graph of my review completely about that which is maybe a weird way to end a review but but I did feel I did I was irritated by by that I just I think in two, the year 2016 that we could probably find some Middle Eastern actors to play those roles uh, no, but I don't know Abbott is terrific in the movie and I know there have been I talked to, to another critic who was like I did not realize until the until the credits that that was who played him and he was he's very good he gets into the he's it's it is, it is actually what emotion I felt in from the film at all mm-hmm. was in the relationship between that character and, and Tina Fey's character. Which also felt like another thing they didn't explore quite enough. It's a very, it's a really, 
hard thing that Whiskey Tango Foxtrot is trying to pull off. It is the degree of difficulty of trying to, to, to comment on all of these things and try to mix and match different tones and try and, and different bits of political and feminist commentary. I mean, this is a film with a big agenda. It's not that far off. It just needs to be, I don't know. If an I think hour maybe longer? It's a, maybe it's a, <laughs> an hour longer. I think maybe, just need, maybe the direction just needs to have more of a point of view. I mean, that's, that's the big difference to me between it and, and MASH is that you, 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 know, you really feel the hand of, of a filmmaker with a strong point of view, and, th- and that really is a unifying thing in a movie that's full of stuff. And this is full of stuff, and does it, it just feels flat all around. I don't think it feels flat. I think it has a lot of peaks and valleys. And that is something I would be really curious to hear from everybody in this room individually about is we've talked about how this film is doing 50 things at once. Like what's your most favorite and least favorite thing? Because I really like the way the film deals with with journalism when she's actually doing journalism. And I really like the way it deals with her being a woman in this environment. But speaking to your topic, my the thing in this film that I was least interested in is how she spends her downtime. The thing I was least interested in is the rom-com aspect and who she's sleeping with, what she's, whether she's doing drugs, and what the nonstop party looks like. I kind of liked the romance. I, I, I mean, I, I, I just really like Martin Freeman, and I thought it was nice to see him playing kind of a, a cad-ish character. And like, there, who, who comes on to her not unlike a character out of Mash. Oh yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Um, so I kind of liked the development of that character and their relationship. I thought it had a trajectory that I, I think you don't get in a lot of kind of side romances. And and I also like that it didn't necessarily have a resolution, or the resolution it did have felt realistic to that situation and those characters. I just enjoyed the chemistry between those two. I would not have wanted that to be the whole movie, and I understand kind of bristling at it being injected into this movie that had a lot of other potentially more interesting things to say. And the the romance was completely fabricated, according to Kim Barker. That was uh, something that was purely for the movie. So, Along with the whole kidnapping sideline with him. Oh, that was so obviously not something that happened in real life. (laughs) I mean, that was like some Argo level, like, makeup. Oh, I know. Oh, God. Was... I just like Martin Freeman, you guys. Uh, I like <laughs> and even though, even though he is an Englishman who is cast as a Scotsman, which is just Seriously. so offensive. <laughs> <Christopher>. <laughs> why aren't they? Why isn't there more Scottish representation in film? Why, why is Christopher Rabbit playing a Canadian? <laughs> Where is Ian McGregor when you need him? But I most favorite, least favorite. I, I really liked Tina Fey in this movie. I, I got, I liked that she got to, to stretch out a little bit, and I thought I was actually found her sort of. Um, that sort of compulsion addiction, um, you know, the way she kind of found herself over there or found different aspects of herself over there that she was not getting at home. Um, I found that uh, quite well played. That being said, the part where I, I the movie lost me was it became more about her experience in the actual war. So I don't know. But anyway, she she's but but she's good. I'd like to see Tina Fey stretch out a little bit more. I, it's hard to say. I don't think there's you like anyone. nothing. No, I, I mean, I think again, I think this is actually just kind of an okay film. It's not mm-hmm. bad. It's not really a bad film. Uh, I don't think it's a successful film, and it's really hard for me to kind of differentiate between different elements because it, it, they're all just kind of near misses for me. Um, but I think the whole gang involved here, uh, Tina Fey, Robert Carlock, and these directors are they're 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 comedy people primarily, and the film almost kind of gets it, you know, gets in its own way as far as that's concerned. I mean, when it it does have some funny stuff, I really I did enjoy. 
Billy Bob Thornton quite a bit. Uh, Tina Fey does uh, have some good lines. There are some night. There are a couple of bits here and there. I, I, nothing's coming to mind, but I, I recall there being a couple of the sort of like offhand, oddball bits of like throwaway humor that you would, you would catch on Thirty Rock. I mean, that's much more in the wheelhouse of the people um, making this movie, um, but it doesn't come through very strongly. Can we talk a little about downtime in MASH? I mean, we haven't really talked much about that. And I mean, that's so much of the movie, especially the Japan sequence, which just for me, I wish they had cut it. I don't. <laughs> I, mean, I thought I thought it seemed, the sequence worked worked quite well. I kind of taking them out out of that environment and and putting them elsewhere. I think a little bit more conflict with how absurd the hierarchy of, of the army got. The further removed from the actual battleground as it was, which is something that kind of gets returned to in the, in the the football scene as well. So I I don't know. I, it worked for me. I think one of the reasons it doesn't work for me is because. It it seemed so unvaried from like you get the sense that the the four hundred seventy seventh is the way it is because Blake is either a weak leader or an indifferent leader mm-hmm. or he's actively complicit in the stuff they do. But then as soon as they leave, they they start running into military police and like angry generals who don't like the way they throw their power around, and then they throw their power around some more and it's all right. It's like no matter where they go, they're still the same people and the world still bows to them. And I found that just. The realm of fantasy, basically. Mm. Well, let me just say one more thing about downtime in MASH. I mean, I think that's, I mean, the, the movie is primarily in downtime, and I think it's full of just really fun little details, you know, the the drinking, the martinis, the, the fact suicide. That, <laughs> right. The fake fun, suicide. Right. What is up with the you know, fake suicide? The, the, the pranks that you know, all you know, Elliot Gould with his with his uh, jar of olives. Um, I like the, ca- you know, it has a nice casual quality to it it unfolds in a typical robert altman way um you know which is all offhand and like i was saying before um you know one of it's one of the qualities that appeals to me and must have been you know can be alienating is that overlapping dialogue is the fact that he doesn't hammer on any any one one joke things are just kind of there for you to to discover in a in, in a much more casual way um you know so you know it's just a different tone um you know it's a, and it's a tone that would be replicated you know in other altman films which don't proceed in the same way if you look at something like the long goodbye which came a, a few years later you know that's a noir but it's not like some sort of fast paced or even that mood it's it's really just about a vibe you know and 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 i think in mashes is kind of about catch, capturing that vibe i i will say that i do appreciate the immersive quality that aspect of mash and that you know it does feel that you are kind of being invited into this world to just kind of hang out and experience it. Um, whereas Whiskey Tango Foxtrot feels like it's like pulling you by the hand mm-hmm. through the the various points that it wants to make. And that MASH feels a lot more confident in, in that respect. And I do think that is attributable to Altman and his very specific style. Yeah. And also to his, his constant focus on delving into a scene and then taking a broad perspective, a broad approach where a lot of different people become important. Like, as you say, the fact that Whiskey Tango Foxtrot is so specifically tied to one point of view is part of its strength. I don't think it would have worked as like a messy ensemble kind of thing, but it also limits the way the story can be told and the amount of stories that can be told, you know, whereas MASH has a much more broad approach that gets into a lot of different characters. But, you know, one of the things, and this maybe leads into your topic, Genevieve, is that one of the big contrasts, obviously, between MASH and 
whiskey tango foxtrot has to do with gender yes uh so so uh, i believe that's your topic yes, yes? I'm, I'm calling my topic women at war um as we have pointed out many times uh among the many differences separating these two movies is the gender of their point of view characters and the tone of each film follows suit there's a well at least in tasha in my opinion there is kind of a bro-y frat party vibe to mash that connects it to something like Animal House, while Whiskey Tango Foxtrot's focus on its main character's emotional romantic life has garnered it comparisons to Eat, Pray, Love, of all things. <laughs> I don't like that comparison, but women exist in MASH primarily as objects of desire or as literal cheerleaders, with the notable exception of Holops Houlihan, who becomes an object of scorn and ridicule when she declines to accept either of those roles. Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, on the other hand, spends a lot of energy engaging with its female lead's internal life for better and worse, and it gives her a strong non-romantic relationships with characters of both genders. And yet, both films, in their own ways, get at the fact that while war may be hell for all, it's a particularly brutal circle of hell for women. Uh, Hot Lips' histrionic freakout is played for laughs, but watching it from a modern perspective, it's hard not to cringe a little at her portrayal as a shrieking harpy for daring to question the status quo, not to mention the ways in which married female officers have to bat away sexual advances, both welcome and not. And while Kim Baker comes from a much more liberated place where women are more or less accepted as equals, she's attempting to do her work within a culture that doesn't recognize that liberation. There are times when she's able to use that to her advantage, such as when she goes literally undercover in Hajib or infiltrates a group of Afghan women. But there's also a strong sense, particularly in her interaction with Margot Robbie's character, that being a woman in the Kabobble requires a certain amount of emotional armor, whether that comes from internal or external forces. So we've already talked a lot about gender in MASH, and um, you know I don't want to get too deep into comparing the gender imbalance of two films with 45 years and several waves of feminism separating them, but I do wonder how this particular aspect of MASH played to you guys after seeing Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. I mean, I think one of the things that Whiskey Tango Foxtrot brings across, particularly through Margot Robbie's character, who expresses it pointedly several times, is that there are so few women in the kabubble that if you want sex, it's there for you. And you can take your pick of people and you see Roby doing it in a really brutal way when somebody can, she considers below her makes a move on her. That That repeated thing about, you know, you're a four or a six or whatever back in Manhattan, but like here you're nine and a half and I'm a 15. It's just, there's a feeling that neither of them are there for the sexual buffet, but there is a sexual buffet, like if they're bored during downtime. Whereas with MASH, it feels like the the genders are flipped there. The doctors treat the nurses as a sexual buffet and there's only two types of nurses in in the, the camp. The ones who go along and find it fun and want sex in return and those who reject it and are roundly and repeatedly punished for it. You don't really see men being punished in Whiskey Tango Foxtrot for not wanting sex. You do see them punished for wanting sex above their station, whereas where their station is defined by whether Marco Roby finds them attractive <laughs> in the moment. She's good in this movie, too. She, she's she, fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah she's, she's, she's a lot of fun. Well, I mean, one thing I appreciate is, is, is something you kind of touch on is, is the film does show her using that to her advantage like the the whole sequence where she finds out the, why the well is being destroyed mm-hmm. which is something that a that the american military and the men especially in the american military could never find out and i think that was that's something else i keep coming back to this but something else i wanted to see more of in this movie like mm-hmm. like let's give us some more of that um so we I do think, see a little more of it when later she 
goes undercover in, sure. in Hajib and it, it goes poorly right. for her. Um, so, but I didn't believe she'd make that mistake at that point in her career either. I, I just well, I was, but it's also implied that she's acting out of this addictive impulse sure, for sure. you know a, a bigger, more dangerous story. Yeah, I guess. and out of a misunderstanding of the culture. I mean, when mm-hmm. she she presses in closer than she should be in that situation with a camera, and the first thing, the last thing she says before she does it is, "You can't get in there, but I can." Like she just misreads that situation. Right. Yeah, but I I think at that point in her time in Afghanistan, she would misread a situation that badly. Or, or not understand what the rules were that I didn't buy that because I, I thought and that's where I thought it was kind of the opposite of, of the scene I mentioned earlier where it was kind of her very skillfully navigating into places um, you know using what advantages she has as being a woman in that situation so but there's also the aspect that she has those advantages but she only has them because she has a security detail mm-hmm. and a interpreter and uh you know military presence of a bunch of marines you know and her translator also kind of intervenes and maybe gives Mm -hmm. her a false impression of what is being said to her that's true (laughs) uh you know i I mean she is uh you know if he were to actually translate some of the some of the remarks made to her uh, when she when she's out in Kabul and not wearing a headdress, uh, maybe then she would be better prepared for when she goes to a much more uh, restrictive city, uh, Kandahar, and gets herself into a lot of trouble. I mean, if I remember correctly, the first thing we see is her out on the street after a bombing and one of the locals grabs her ass and she curses him out roundly and colorfully and idiomatically in his own language. <laughs> oh, right. I like, forgot about that. Like there's a sense that she is used to this by now and she's like she's picked up a bunch of local idioms for the situation which clearly takes him back so there is a sense that like she's she's learned something about the culture and she's learned how like there's nobody standing in to protect her or translate for her in that situation like she just she lets it roll off her back and she stands up for herself and it says something very important about that character at that point let me ask you all a question about whiskey tango foxtrot because when i saw the trailer for this my worry about it was that it was going to be you know liz lemon in afghanistan and it was just going to be you know a stain on the very on the very notion of women in journalism Hmm. uh and and it isn't that but the fact that it isn't that does that does it leave a lot of comedy on the table does it play against the strengths of the people who are involved in making it i think it kind of does i don't because i think tina fey i mean tina fey was instrumental in having this movie made she was one of the producers she acquired the rights to the book she had actually she had paramount acquire the rights to the book she brought in lorne michaels she brought in the writer who's somebody she's worked with a bunch and mm-hmm. uh, co-created uh, unbreakable kimmy schmidt with and dirty rock and 30 Rock, she was very much like, I think that this is largely her vision. And I think part of her vision is she wanted to deal with some of these things about women in war. She wanted to deal with issues of feminism and representation and sexual identity and oppression in other countries, like all of these things. I She's a very politically active sure. and specific person. And I don't think that she's undercutting herself by not just playing to humor. Speaking to uh, Tina Fey's involvement, it was actually Michiko Kukutani's review uh, of the Taliban shuffle in the New York Times that 
um, suggested Tina Fey. She writes that she depicts herself as a sort of Tina Fey character. Mm -hmm. And I was actually listening to an interview with Barker where, you know, she says after hearing that she like called her agent and was like, you know, make sure you send this to Tina Fey's people. And her agent was like, what do you think I I am? Of course, I've already done it. (laughs) Um, But so I think that there is some of that suggested in the original text. It's not necessarily imposing Faye and Carlock's comedic viewpoint on something that doesn't already suggest it. Yeah, and as I say, the excerpts of the book that I've read are more political and more informed than the movie feels. I think that the movie did dial back pretty sharply in the direction of accessibility and a certain amount of comedy. I think it's trying to kind of meet in the middle between Tina Fey's comic uh, side, her political interest, and then the book itself. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about the movie. That's, again, just the fundamental problem with the movie is it's just it's so it's so neither here nor there on a lot of different elements like that, where, where this does feel so much... This is such a classic fish out of water premise but it can't it doesn't go all the way with it and it doesn't go all the way with you know with the horror the horror of war angle or com- journalism angle or commit or the you know there are commitment to uh you know getting stories out of afghanistan that sharp political angle that's not ex- that's not explored all the way it's just right kind of in a bad spot right in the middle i guess i engaged it's sort of half heart not even half-hearted but half-formed engagement with all of those things more than i enjoyed mash's kind of laser focus on this one specific view of war so but yeah, you know too. Your, your mileage would be very to me, it, it just comes down to, like, I would rather see the ambition that they're trying to display here of trying to do too many things than them trying to do too few things or too predictable things. Fish out of water comedy would be a very predictable approach. Making it full rom-com would be a very predictable approach. I had the same problem that you had fully engaging with the film, but I really like the fact that it's trying to do all these things. I like the, I like its ambition. And it makes me respect it more. Yeah, it's got to come, come strong. Come strong or don't come at all. How about this? We can respect MASH's stylistic ambition and success if you can respect Whiskey Tango Foxtrot's narrative ambition that it may not necessarily have achieved. <laughs> well, I'm going to say that our listeners can judge for themselves because oh. MASH is widely available on DVD and Blu-ray. The most recent edition is an album commentary and some nice making of features that are informed this podcast. And it's on various on-demand services as well. Uh, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot is currently in theaters. We'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put something interesting on your radar. Genevieve, want to kick us off? Well, I haven't actually seen a whole lot of movies lately. I've been kind of in TV land, which we don't talk about the devil TV on this podcast. So, um, but wait, I, wait, you watch TV too? <laughs> Can, do we all watch TV? Should we have I, a podcast about it? I threw all my TVs away. <laughs> but um, I, I, as is my want, I will bring a film-related item to the table or a couple and, um, in the form of some podcasts. We like those. First, just a real quick recommendation for a recent episode of a podcast that I know Tasha and I both like, Nerdette, um, produced out of Chicago's WBEZ. There is a conversation with Kim Barker on Tina Fey playing her in Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. And, you know, we kind of fainted at talking about the adaptation aspect of uh, that film without any of us having read the book. So if you are curious about 
knowing more of what was left in and what was taken out and what was changed, this is a really good resource for that. But my main recommendation is a podcast that I'm sure pretty much everyone who listens to this show is familiar with, but I just kind of want to remind everyone that You Must Remember This is back with a great new series on The Blacklist. You know, uh, it's Karina Longworth's podcast kind of exploring the forgotten histories of cinema's first hundred years or however wow, she says it. That's a very good Karina <laughs> Coming for you, Karina. Um, no, but there... Uh, the show took a break last December and was kind of off the radar for a couple months. So, you know, if it fell out of your podcast queue, don't need to feel bad about that. But it is it came roaring back with this great new series on the Hollywood Blacklist. I think they've done five episodes so far covering kind of the prehistory of the Blacklist and then kind of getting into specific figures like Dorothy Parker and uh, Humphrey Bogart and John Huston. And it, I have no idea how long it's going to be going. Uh, you know, this is a podcast that did a 20-part series on Charlie Manson in Hollywood, so it could go on for a full year. But I recommend you jump on the train now because it's great. Yeah, that, that show gives me podcasting. <laughs> She's so good. Oh, just on a, both a both a research and and a production level, oh, it's so good. You got to back both those podcasts. But on the Nerdette tip, their interview a few podcasts back with Caitlin Moran is one of my all time favorite episodes of any podcast. She's a humor writer, and they just they dig kind of deep into her writing and feminism and being a woman and kind of approaching the world with humor instead of frustration when you're frustrated. It's hilarious and beautiful. I love Nerdette. Also, I had a recent interview with Nick Hornby, who uh, did Brooklyn, uh, which we all liked, too. So there's another sort of uh, film inroad to Nerdette for you. He, I did not know he was nearly so accenty until I listened <laughs> to that podcast. Uh, Scott, what about you? What do you got for us? Uh, well, I spent last weekend at the True False Film Festival in Columbia, Missouri, which I highly recommend to you, the listener, if you like great documentaries, parties, and more delicious comfort food than you can possibly eat. Uh, I tried, though. God, did I try. Um, so I saw lots of great films there that are just kind of starting to roll out on the festival circuit, and a lot of them haven't found distribution yet. But I wanted to put one film on your radar that will definitely uh, be coming out later this year in art houses and on Showtime. It's called Wiener, and it's oh. about Anthony Wiener, the former New York Democratic congressman who was run out of office after he accidentally posted photos of himself in his underwear on Twitter. <laughs> Don't do that, people. <laughs> it's, just, it's a bad thing. Uh, uh, Wiener is married to Huma Abedin, who is uh, uh, known as Hillary Clinton's sort of right-hand woman and was seen as half of a very powerful political marriage. And Wiener is about his attempt to mount a comeback by running for mayor of New York City, uh, which goes great. Until <laughs> until another round of sex surface and he and his wife are newly humiliated. The film is very slick, uh, you know, and it strikes me as sort of an attempt at image rehabilitation that got more interesting when Wiener's campaign went completely off the rails. But still, there's a lot of really interesting and important questions here about the private lives of public figures and whether someone like Wiener should be punished for reckless behavior that's outside his job. Uh, maybe you have different opinions. The film certainly will will engage you, and you, you definitely get a sense of his political talent, which is so much, uh, which stands in incredibly sharp contrast to the, of course, the winner of the uh, of the contest, who is Bill De Blasio, who has all kinds of problems uh, and uh, as as a politician. The film reminded me a lot of The War Room, 
Uh, so if you like the war room, I, uh, I think this is a, a really nice sort of inside look at how the system works. Um, and uh, it is uh, a fascinating and kind of ugly thing to see. What about you, Keith Phipps? I'll keep it brief since since uh, um, since I've been talking the whole episode. But, um, you know, we had a choice of several current films to go with here. And uh, with Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, and I'm glad we did. It was a good conversation. MASH is, a, is a, certainly a, a very fruitful topic. But uh, before this, um, uh, Genevieve and Tasha saw the other film we were considering called Zootopia and said, yeah, it's pretty good. I'm not sure there's enough there. What are you talking about? It's great. Zootopia is so, it's, it's delightful. I thought it would be a good yeah. pairing with Song of the South, but that might have been hard to find. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's just it's really difficult to recommend a film that people can only see illegally. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that would have been a good episode. Maybe we'll do that. The alternate universe in which we did that, we had it was also a very good episode. But no, I saw it with my with my kid, and uh, she was was uh, enthralled by it and, and came out wanting to be uh, Officer Hops. Um, and uh, but no, I, I think it's 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 beautifully animated. It's 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 a not subtle but but well executed uh, parable about about race and and uh, and uh, prejudice uh, woven into uh, this really rich um, anthropomorphic world set in a city called Zootopia, where where predators and prey have worked out their differences, except not really, because there's a lot of differences, you know, a lot of problems that still underlying. Uh, that I I, I I liked it. I, I uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it again. I definitely and liked I, and and probably again and again and again. <laughs> yeah. I have a four year old. I do think that central allegory is really interesting. I don't think it holds together through the entirety of the movie. I think it gets a little muddled. I don't, um, th- I don't think it's neat. I just think it's, yeah. I think it's effective. It, it, it is like it, I, I really respected that the film went there and did it in an interesting way and in a, a pretty lovely way. And I, I do really like the world. I thought it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought it was very fine. <laughs> Tasha, what have you got? Did you think it was near mint, Keith? Just yeah. out of curiosity. <laughs> I don't know. Just we seem to be great in comics. No, I, I don't want to. I don't want to undersell Zootopia. I think it's a sweet film, and I think it's got a lot of interesting things going on. It just uh, I wasn't over the moon for it. However, I think bringing a four year old to it, it gives you such a different perspective on it. I, next time around, I'll borrow a four year old. Although you, it may have been the mine. although it may have been the screaming baby behind us at the screening that uh, that baby was not bit. enjoying Zootopia. No, no. Wow. Don't take babies to yeah. things. Yeah. Anything. Um, Tasha, what about, well, is there something you are over the moon for? There are a couple things I'm over the moon for. Um, both of these uh, people who follow my Twitter will be way ahead of the game and can just tune out right now. Um, but a couple of recent articles in culture magazines that are way off my normal reading list. Um, there was an article in the Pacific Standard uh, a couple weeks ago by Rachel Syme that was tracking down um, what she calls the six original feminists of Hollywood. And it's a, a deep historical dive and an oral history into uh, what happened when six women got together in 1979 and sued a couple of the major studios for lack of female representation for uh, essentially gender discrimination. And Rachel tracked down, sadly not our Rachel, we miss you. We really missed you in this particular conversation <laughs> so badly, Rachel. She would have been so angry. <laughs> I know. Her, her she would imaginary, have been angry at you two. Her imaginary <laughs> anger is delicious to me. <laughs> Rachel Syme tracked down five of the original Hollywood Six and talked to them in detail about what what drove their attempts to have film careers, what kept them from having film careers, the sexism of the industry in the 70s and 80s, what they did about it, what came from it. And all of this might sound, it's a very long article, and this might sound very heavy, but it's 
it's light. It's funny. The piece really moves. Their personalities come across so clearly and well. And like these are all people who were kind of pushed out of the careers that they wanted to have because those careers just did not exist for them in 1979. But it's a really interesting window into the time. And it also kind of comes from the perspective of this is potentially lost history that we shouldn't lose. This is potentially six names that people have not heard uh, in 20 years and that they should be really aware of. Um, That article is called The Original Six, The Story of Hollywood's Forgotten Feminist Crusaders, and it is a really entertaining read. That Uh, that should be on your radar, too. Pacific Standard? They they did that toast story. Remember the artisanal toast story from a couple years back that was so amazing? It became like a a This American Life episode. Yeah, it should uh, put on your Twitter feed or something. They they put out some good stuff. Oh, there's so much Twitter, though. What else, though, Tasha? The other thing is an article that turned up in Business Insider... um, Scott, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call an audible and have you pronounce the writer's name for me. Uh, Jason Garasio. And what did Jason Garasio do for the Dissolve, Scott He Demise? wrote a really fantastic oral history of hoop dreams. And for Business Insider, he wrote a really fascinating interview with Tom, Thomas Lennon uh, about what the experience was like being in Terrence Malick's Knight of Cups. Mm-hmm. Which apparently Malik just called him in for. If anybody's seen the movie, they will recognize um, the giant Hollywood Hills party uh, with all of these actual real life celebrities. It lasts about five minutes in the film, just sort of this like camera wandering through it all. Apparently, it was a eleven hour shoot, mm. and for this eleven hour shoot, Lennon was given a card that said on it, "There's no such thing as a fireproof wall," and was told just kind of. Be inspired by it. There's so much detail about what it's like to shoot for Malik in this article. It's really entertaining and it's really wacky. And I didn't love that film. And reading this article made me love it even less, but made me love the article a lot more. <laughs> Scott Device is rocking back and forth in pain yeah, in his chair is, right this now. This is all inside the sausage factory. I don't need, I don't, I shouldn't be impacted one's thoughts on one of the great filmmakers of our time. Yeah, actually I I I it's not it's, it's my least favorite Terrence Malick film, which is which is tough to say, but but um that makes sense to me. Actually, <laughs> that, that to me that 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 really makes sense to me with how that is a note you hand an actor to produce the type of films that Terrence Malick makes. I, I don't, I don't see it as crazy or I think it's funny and I, I'm, and you know, it's neat to hear Lennon's perspective on it, but no, that, that seems like a very sensible approach to making a Terrence yeah, Malick movie. As as I haven't seen the new film, so I can't, I, maybe it's the one that turns him, me against him. Uh, I've heard from a lot of people that, that that is the case, which is, which is upsetting. But, uh, wow. you know, when the guy is trying to, you know, reinvent cinema, going to be some, stumbles here and there yes i would say turning it it didn't turn me against malik that's a strong statement it confirmed a few concerns that i had about the movie and it made them a lot more entertaining so no it's it's a very entertaining uh, piece i don't want to take away from it so there you go thanks guys i will track down those articles and i uh yeah i was on board with what you must remember this early on and for some reason i, I kind of fell behind so now it's time to, a good time to catch up so thanks And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out March 29th and 31st. Scott, tell us about our next pairing. The new movie 10 Cloverfield Lane, a nominal sequel to the alien invasion movie Cloverfield, opens with a woman packing her bags and making a quick dash out of town, only to peel off the road in the middle of the night and wind up in a completely unexpected and dangerous situation. In that way, and many others, the film reminded us of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Next time on The Next Picture Show... 
We'll talk about Psycho and 10 Cloverfield Lane and the marketing, twists, and suspense set pieces that tie them together. Maybe we'll talk a little taxidermy, too. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of MASH, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha? You can find me at The Verge writing about film, TV, and general culture. And you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Scott? You could find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. Uh, you can find me in various publications, including NPR, Variety, Village Voice, uh, New York Times, uh, Washington Post, Rolling Stone, Vulture, and Oscilloscope's Musings. Genevieve, what about you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. And I will be writing about the Demon Television at Vulture, where I will uh, be doing recaps of The Americans, which is a fabulous series on FX. Cinematic, one would say. Yes, I would call it a cinematic series. So yes, the first one of those will have dropped by the time this episode comes out, so you can follow along with the season. And you can find me on Twitter at kfips3000 and at uprocks.com. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show via Twitter at at nextpicturepod or by visiting nextpictureshow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks again to Genevieve for producing the show with assistance from Colin, the animal, Griffith. And thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. And finally, we'd like to thank our parent podcast, Film Spotting, for all their help, input, and support. Please tune in next time. Suicide is painless. Suicide. It brings on many changes. Changes as I can take or leave it if I please.